Welcome to The Power of Data, the podcast by Dun & Bradstreet. Data is everywhere, and there is more created every second of every day. Join us to hear from leaders unlocking the value of data. Welcome to The Power of Data podcast. I'm Neil Ishwood, a subject matter expert and strategy leader for our compliance line of business here at Dun & Bradstreet. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Pekka Dare, Vice President of the International Compliance Association. So welcome, Pekka. How are you doing today? Hi, great. Thank you, Neil. Yeah, lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Excellent. Good to have you. You've had an impressive career in compliance for the best part of 25 years and an exciting journey in the industry. So I'd love it if we could start by giving the listeners an intro into your career journey, your role at the ICA and a high level view of the current compliance landscape, if that's okay. Yeah, well, you're making me feel old there, Neil. But yeah, thank you. It's been a long and emotional journey. (laughs) I think started out originally as a lawyer, qualified in New Zealand and then subsequently really qualified in the UK, sort of private prosecutions, but then I moved into tax law. And I guess the thing that started me on the path towards sort of compliance was starting to work with law enforcement, looking at organised crime. And, you know, I found it amazing looking at the complexity and the sophistication, in particular in, in Australasia, we looked a lot at, at motorcycle gangs. And it's fascinating to see the global networks that they have and how they use the best lawyers and the best accountants and they use complex corporate structures, all the stuff that we see today in the world of money laundering, you know. So that got me interested in the subject and worked in various roles in industry as an MLRO, the head of financial crime, sort of more sort of retail banking focused, but also for a large insurance and investment company. And again, to our listeners, I would say one of the things I would really recommend is, is try and go out beyond your own organization and make networks you know, with other professionals, if you have a chance to join industry groups, professional networking bodies, do all of that stuff, because that's what really pushed me into the the world of compliance, starting to make a difference at that bigger level. And I've been with the ICA for about 15 years now. I've loved the journey with the ICA. If you're not familiar with the International Compliance Association, we offer professional qualifications. We have a professional membership body all around the world. And we provide, you know, learning and training uh, solutions on, on lots of levels. And my role really now, I used to run a lot of the teaching side of the courses at ICA, but my role now as vice president is to help build partnerships with the ICA and other organizations and also help represent us around the world at events and conferences. And I also look after the academic side of things as well. So I work a lot with our academic director in terms of keep maintaining our academic standards of our qualifications and with the university that we work with, the Alliance Business School Manchester. But yeah, it's a great role. I'm so lucky because I get to talk to compliance professionals from different industries all over the world, whether it's someone who's working in the gaming industry, whether they're banking, whether they're a regulator or law enforcement or new technology provider, fintech company. You know, it's, it's just fascinating and it's it's moving all the time now, isn't it? So yeah, that's me in a nutshell, really. Sorry to ramble, but uh, hopefully that was uh, some context. Oh, that's perfect. So uh, have you seen the membership base grow in the ICA? over the last uh, the time you've been involved there? Is that something that is a continuing trend of more people having a thirst for that education side and to get into this area of the business? Yeah, 100%. 100%. And um, I think, I'm sure you've seen it in your career, Neil, you know, the, the changing emphasis of compliance, moving from perhaps something that was seen as a little bit of a, I wouldn't say marginal activity, but it certainly wasn't at the centre of business strategy. And now it's become a fully-fledged profession. It's at the heart of driving change and making a better society, if you look at the bigger picture. 
And the other thing I would say is that the sophistication and the maturity of, I guess, compliance standards around the world have risen amazingly in the last sort of 10, 15 years. And also other industries are catching up. You know, we saw, a, and I'm not suggesting banking is perfect, but I think it's fair to say the level of investment in anti-financial crime compliance and in, in, in banking was certainly higher, wasn't it, in the early days. And now we're seeing other industries, other jurisdictions all moving upwards. So the ICA has seen dramatic growth all around the world, whether it's in the Asia-Pacific region, we have a huge business out there, uh, whether it's right across Europe, whether it's Africa, you know, North America. Again, just really interesting to see the growth. And particularly as well, the ownership of risk being in the business has seen a real change in emphasis where you're getting a lot more you know, if you like the first line coming in to upskill their anti-financial crime or, or compliance knowledge. So, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think we've seen uh, very, very similar that traditionally it was very much a focus of the financial services industry. Obviously, with regulation, they were obviously forced to take a lot of this uh, compliance very seriously, obviously. But I think we've noticed over the past few years that the level of maturity and complexity of the conversations we're having outside of financial services, the bar has really raised now, like yeah. you said, whereas maybe some other industries were lagging behind or playing a little bit of catch up. We're now having very sophisticated conversations and right into the detail. So I think you're right. We see the industry really striving for the best practice rather than kind of being forced to comply with best practice. So that's a, a big shift that I think we've noticed, especially. Yeah. So you talk about non-financial services. I, I think that's a fascinating area. And and I'm not just talking about sort of designated non-financial service businesses like, you know, high value goods dealers or casinos or whatever. I'm also talking about, you know, just any commercial entity, you know, whether it's a, a large multinational media company or a manufacturing company, oil and gas, pharmaceutical. And that's really interesting to see the kind of the challenges that they face. Often it might be from a slightly different lens to, say, a, a financial services institution, but a lot of the commonality is still there. And I think the, the great thing is that we're all hopefully starting to share good practice between, you know, different industries. And I'm sure you you help do that as well in, at DMB. Yeah, it's been interesting, obviously, similar to yourself, attending conferences and, and seeing how things have evolved. And dare I say, I'm actually at my age now, that remember going to some conferences where the chief data officer or CDO was was something new. And at the time, it was seen as an emerging thing that the importance and relevance of data. But now it's quite commonplace that a CDO role in a lot of organizations is kind of embedded, it's matured. And I think that we're seeing that fall on, like you said, into this risk and how that's becoming embedded into the culture of businesses now. So rather than them seeing it as that pain, we must comply, it's a cost to our business, we're seeing a genuine shift to we don't want to be associated with any of that uh, activity and we want to take real positive steps to eradicate it effectively. So that's a, another shift we've seen as well through the maturity of these roles and organisations. Yeah, and I think, you know, even something like, you know, the ESG focus is a massive opportunity for, for all of us that work around compliance because it maybe takes people out of that mindset of we're doing this stuff because there's a regulation somewhere that says we have to or there's a rule in a regulatory handbook. We're actually, we're doing this stuff because... It's the best thing for society. It's the best thing for a sustainable business that's going to grow and look after our employees and our shareholders and everyone, you know. And that way of thinking, I guess, is a great progress because I think in the past, a lot of compliance professionals that I've worked with have, and probably myself included, have fallen into the trap of almost holding the stick up of, well, if you don't do it, you'll get a fine or you break the law. 
when actually the more powerful message to the business is this is the best thing for this business and all of our futures to do this. And, and it's what all our stakeholders expect us to do. You know, and I think ESG going up the agenda is going to make that argument hopefully more resonant, you know. Yeah, I think we've seen that as well in, in the public's perception of these areas as well. So I think there's also been a shift that people know they're going to be judged through potentially more of a moral lens rather than a regulatory lens. And I think we've seen that with things like tax avoidance, for example. So we know that a lot of these uh, schemes may be okay and may be legal, but the public doesn't perceive them to be a good thing. And therefore, businesses are responding in a similar manner and saying, well, we don't really want to be associated that close to that area. So I think, yeah, they're applying a different lens or different standard to the risk they want to take on and not saying, well, it's legal. <laughs> They're now saying, well, regardless of it's legal, is is it moral? Is it the right thing for our business to do? Which again, is another shift. Yeah, 100%, 100%. So knowing uh, your customers, vendors, and third parties is one of the backbones to compliance. And I think a lot of talk has been around beneficial ownership, identification and verification being critical as part of combating financial crime, money laundering, et cetera. What do you see as the the big challenges in this space? So maybe the shift around looking at not just ownership anymore, but also the control of entities. What's your views on uh, on that area? Yeah, look, it's always been an incredibly challenging area for those involved in customer due diligence, especially when it comes to legal persons, you know, really understanding the ownership and control structure in complex arrangements is a massive headache. And, you know, I've had the the experience of working with people in commercial banking and relationship managers and actually walking through the process they go through when they onboard a complex structure. And we've designed some training, you know, using real cases where you go through that exercise and the amount of work is so difficult. And the minute you get that, those layers of complexity, it makes it a real challenge. And we know that there is also clearly requirements that you go beyond formal legal ownership and understand the reality of the control. And I guess the challenge for for institutions has always been how do they turn that into a an effective procedure and process where they get consistently good outcomes when they onboard clients. And I think, you know, raising the skill set of people doing this is really important because it's about thinking critically and asking the question, do I really understand the ownership and control structure here? And also, you know, there are lots of opportunities now with the new technology that's coming on board and we'll perhaps talk about that. But, you know, for the human eye to do it manually, often in a very complex structure, is you're never going to be as effective as possible finding all the connections you need to, especially if there are deliberate attempts to conceal those connections. But what I would say is training people to think critically, to understand what can be some of the indicators of control beyond legal ownership. So for example, you know, understanding connections between a nominee, how can you identify there's a nominee in a structure? How can you identify family ownership? How can you use effective questioning of customers and their representatives as well? You know, how can you ask the right questions? And of course, as you know, there's often been a tension between, I guess, people who maybe own the relationship in firms and those people doing the onboarding, where there's a, a lack of willingness to go back and ask for more information to keep the customer happy and to make the process more streamlined. So it's such a challenging area. And obviously, there's been attempts to develop KYC utilities, but they're still kind of you know embryonic in most jurisdictions, although I, I gather that there are more attempts happening now in Europe and Canada, obviously Scandinavia. But look, in terms of the challenges, yeah, it's understanding the true nature of control structures. If you have organizations that have 
registrations in less transparent jurisdictions, obviously you will often have barriers, legal barriers. And I think we've seen across the EU a bit of a move, haven't we, with the rollout of beneficial ownership registers, which has not been perfect. Even where there are jurisdictions with beneficial ownership registers in Europe, there are still barriers to easy access, aren't there? You know, so there are still several jurisdictions in the EU that charge you or put weird barriers. I think it's Belgium, for example, that you is it right Belgium you have to like register with a Belgian identity card to even get onto the platform so unless you're a Belgian national you're going to struggle so there's still a few kind of bizarre barriers like that which I think don't help the process either yeah that's uh, definitely something we've seen in that a lot of these jurisdictions in Europe I feel like they've I don't want to say done the bare minimum, but I think they've just looked at it from a very narrow lens of, I've got this requirement, I've got to get some visibility in my market. So they've gone about it in whichever method was easiest for them to implement it. But I think one of the opportunities that's been slightly missed is for them to come together and say, well, what should be some common best practices across all our registers? As simple as, can we even agree a basic starter for 10 schema for the storage of the data? Because like you said now, technology brings a lot to this play. It can automate a lot of the straightforward pieces so that like you said, you want your analyst to be more focused on the higher risk cases. And like you said, that investigative view of why is that structure like that? Does it does it make commercial sense? And they haven't necessarily coordinated and how will we join that up? Because I think a lot of the conversations we've had, a lot of the way that you detect whether it's financial crime or, or other patterns, it's now different data sets coming together and connecting them. That's how you start to actually identify the patterns and the anomalies, so to speak. So just company's house knowing this business is small, it kind of doesn't really stand out. You then merge that with transaction data and say 60 millions just flowed through it and it's gone into a jurisdiction that is an anomaly. It's that where this starts to come out. And I think that those registers like you said, those arbitrary barriers, if you can't get access to the data in bulk, then you can't start to bring the data together. And that that one by one access may tick the box and say, well, in Belgium, our nationals can go on and pay whatever it might be, a couple of euros to get this. But that's not necessarily moving the needle. It's making that data truly fully available in bulk. Oh, it can be joined up. Exactly. Yeah, and I was reading some analysis and just the data is really inconsistent as well, as you say. So like across the EU, I, I believe some, you know, some jurisdictions in the EU don't have nationality, for example, or date of birth of the UBO and others do. So trying to make it consistent like that is a challenge. And I guess the other thing I would say, my understanding is that, as you say, quite a few member states, I think, have been guilty of doing, I wouldn't say it's the bare minimum, but, but achieving what I would call technical compliance. So they could say, yep, we've got a register, it complies with the fifth EU directive, job done. But actually, we know that there's a lot of administrative reforms or legal reforms that these countries might need to make it proper, make it effective. And also, we know that the EU is bringing a sixth directive and additional money laundering regulations that are coming that are going to impact this. There's even debates about taking the ownership threshold down for UBOs, isn't there? So I guess if I was cynical, I'd say a lot of EU states are probably looking at that and saying, well, let's just tick the box for now and let's wait and see what happens with these new changes coming out of the, the European Commission before we do anything that requires a huge amount of heavy lifting. 
But I get frustrated because I think, you know, there's the old expression, isn't it? The, the best disinfectant is sunlight. I'm paraphrasing that terribly. But basically that why shouldn't we open up these to the public with, with yes, with some safeguards? I, I get that. But, you know, and especially to NGOs, that's my bugbear, where, you know, some of the amazing NGOs we have that do great work focusing on illicit capital flows and corruption and, and money laundering, you know, they need access to these with minimal cost barriers to, to do the great work that they do. And that sharing between, I guess, NGOs, civil society and regulated firms can be accelerated. I think it's a really important area. I mean, you can't argue that steps are going in the right direction, but it's still very early days. Yeah, exactly. And and I think, uh, obviously, when you work in this area and you also get a little bit hands-on with the data, it can be frustrating because you definitely see the improvements they bring. Uh, So if we're looking at specific data sets, we can say, yes, they're covering some loopholes where share ownership wouldn't be there, for example. They're definite having benefits. And then maybe if we just pick on the UK for, for an example, and then they kind of go slightly backwards and say the ownership will be in a range or a band. And we kind of say, well, it was an exact percentage in in the old confirmation statement. So why did we go back a step there and start to remove a bit of granularity from the data when it could have gone even further, like you said? Yeah. I also, without the risk of being terribly UK-centric, Neil, um, I do think that the UK you know, the the rush of kind of stuff that's come through the UK legislation we've had with the Economic Crime Act and and all of this, we still to get the details and the teeth behind it. So, you know, how are we going to enforce this? What is going to be the resources to make sure that these things are actually enforced? That if people are breaking the new rules in the UK and beyond, what is the real threat to them? Because again, if it's a toothless exercise, how effective is it really going to be? Yeah, well, that's a, a perfect point, really, to one of the points I think we were going to discuss. It is the, the UK Economic Crime Act, because that has definitely ramped up requirements and shifted some focus there. I know sanctions are obviously something that's very high in the media's uh, view at the moment. And we saw that that brought in now the, the strict civil liability around those. Yeah, yeah, which caused a lot of sort of wailing and gnashing of teeth in the compliance community. You know, I, I guess for those people that aren't in the UK listening to this, obviously what that means is, you know, technically you don't need to intend to breach the sanctions. If you breach it, you breach it and you're criminally liable, which is given the massive tidal wave of new sanctions provisions coming out and increased complexity around, you know, sectoral sanctions and payment terms, as well as, of course, you know, exposure to controllers and ownership with a 50% rule and all of these complex areas, you know, the chances of actually inadvertently being caught is high for not just financial institutions, but every institution. You know, here at the ICA, we've had to review our own sanctions protocols and systems to make sure that we are doing what we should be doing as well. And it's affecting every corporate entity, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I think that's a really good point because obviously we work in this space. We, dare I say, live and breathe these rules and the complexity. So we probably have a tainted lens towards some of these reforms. But I think we do need to bear in mind that there are obviously tens of millions of businesses that this is not part of their psyche. You know, small businesses, yeah. manufacturing firms, etc. that first of all, they've got to try and understand their disclosure rules. You know, again, 
talking about the UK, we have seen inconsistencies where people put one thing on the PSC register and a different thing on their shareholders or confirmation statements. And I think that's through lack of understanding. No one's trying to change data. <laughs> it's just gone a bit beyond them. And I do wonder if some of these requirements do you feel they're almost coming too fast for those that are not necessarily thinking around this industry day to day, the kind of other sectors? Possibly. I mean, we've seen MOE in the US a, a real growth in non-financial institutions getting fined for sanctions violations. And I think that the banks probably have a massive role. And I know they do this to, to work in partnership with their customers, to educate them. This is, not, this is different to AML. You can have a conversation with your client as a bank about their sanctions risk and how they mitigate that. And you can even give them maybe some advice. And I know banks do work in partnership often with their firms or their client base to help them raise standards. So maybe there's, there's more that the, I guess, the government could do, maybe more that regulators could do, like OFSEA and OFAC, to, to try and support non-financial institutions who are very immature in this space, even now. But coming back to the UK specifically, I think, you know, obviously we've seen the moves around, particularly driven by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, to the focus on foreign ownership, where we're going to have this register of overseas entities. And, and then, of course, we're going to have additional verification to try and make sure it's not just a self-declaration. But again, I think the question mark that I've seen a lot of commentators asking is, how robust is that verification going to be? Who's going to enforce it? And of course, there's a window, isn't there? There's a, there's a gratis period, a transition period where arguably, again, critics have said that gives time for targeted individuals to move their assets out of the UK to somewhere else. So yeah, I think there's a lot of question marks over the reforms that are coming in the UK. And I guess probably the only practical takeaway for compliance professionals, I would say, for all of the stuff we've been talking about is how are you in your organisation going to integrate this new data, whether it's in a, a beneficial ownership register, whether it's in a register of overseas ownership, how are you going to integrate that new data set into your CDD processes? And how are you going to spot when there are red flags in that data? I think those are probably the two big challenges that a lot of compliance people, particularly focused on the client onboarding and CDD bits, are wrestling with at the moment. Yeah, and I think that goes back to the technology has moved on now, hasn't it? And we might repeat that phrase a few times now around connecting the dots, but I think the reg tech, fintech industry, there's so much going on. There's so many new, exciting entrance to this area and the insights they're pulling out when they get their hands on this data, begin to merge it and draw those graphs and connections out, I think is superb. But to the actual company's house reform, I think it is crucial because it's almost a kind of house of cards, so to speak, isn't it? That if you're doing your analysis, you've got to have some underlying trust that the data in there is correct. So I think back to your point, that's welcomed. The company's house reforms are definitely welcome to try and bring some of that to it. But we will have to see how it's practically implemented because, as you mentioned, they're not going to have the resource capability to verify every single business. So they're going to have to adopt some of those practices to say, well, how are companies' house going to target who they query now? They're going to almost have to adopt some of that financial sector technology to say, how are we picking up the anomalies, et cetera, to start to use the query power that we've actually got now? Absolutely. And to your point, you know, when I first started out in sort of AML, the number of regulatory technology solutions out there, you could count them on the fingers of one hand. 
And now there are literally thousands of solutions. So I think that the role and the challenge, isn't it, for compliance professionals is to navigate through what's out there in the market and find the best solutions because, boy, there are some transformational solutions out there that can really help you save money, be more effective and actually manage risk a lot better. But that process of identifying those solutions that are right for your business and working that through is, is now a key part of compliance professionals' skill. And, you know, we, we've developed a new training program focused on that. How do you engage with a digital red tech solution and, and what things do you need to consider to make it work? And I would say it's really uneven, Neil, around the world. You know, some jurisdictions are only really waking up to the power of technology and compliance and others are probably further, much further ahead, aren't they? I'm sure you see that as well. Yeah, I mean, we sit on obviously multiple panels. We hear from participants within organisations, the global banks, and that has been something that's come out, I think, in the UK the market is generally quite advanced and they're accepting of technological approaches, but they do say we have other regulators and I won't name won't name names or jurisdictions where they're still fighting a bit of a barrier. So I remember at one briefing session, they were saying that the regulator still had this kind of notion that checks should be done manually. Yeah, and yeah. I don't think they really had that appreciation that for a lot of the large banks, that manual portion is really just administrative. They're merely collecting data inefficiently. But the regulator still had this view that if someone's doing it manually and looking at it, that somehow they're applying a level of intelligence. Yeah, and they're looking at each case with a with a forensic eye and saying, aha, this document is clearly a false or you know, I had exactly that same conversation with a large tier one bank who was frustrated with the regulatory attitude, saying exactly the same thing. And again, I won't name the bank or the jurisdiction, but you still see that, unfortunately, the attitude that, oh, well, it's a paper at best. Actually, in a lot of cases, you've been far, far more likely using automated solutions to spot fraud or money laundering or, or you know, whatever it is, or strange patterns using the technology. Yeah. Because as you say, otherwise it it just becomes a factory of processing bits of paper, doesn't it? Exactly. And I think they even presented and said, we've we've actually done some quality control and we can show you with statistics that the manual process generates a lot of error when we QC it. Whereas we're looking at technology, not as a way of trying to escape having people look at records. They just want them looking at the right ones and not doing the mundane actions, the sort of admin data collection, et cetera. And I think that's what a lot of the industry wants, isn't it? Is we want to investigate, but we have to know which pockets to pick because we can't investigate every single entity. It's just not appropriate. Yeah, 100%. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, it's not just things like the manual processing world. It's also things like resistance in some jurisdictions to cloud-based solutions where regulators just are fearful of, of any data going outside of their jurisdiction. And that really, I know, hamstrings a lot of firms who are particularly multi-jurisdictional looking at solutions because the regulator just says, nope, you cannot have any data going out of the country, which if the right controls are there, you know. I mean, this recording of the session, Neil, is going to be on the cloud a server somewhere, isn't it? So it's just the way the modern world is. And to be fair, many regulators are actually being very forward thinking and very supportive of, of new regulatory technology. I think particularly in 
in the UK, in Singapore, and we're seeing some really positive moves to be supportive. So it's not all doom and gloom. Let's look for some positives. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think with the company's house reforms, as you said, we've not necessarily got the full detail, but at least they are saying they will be looking to use the more electronic identification and verification tools. So in the market, they know there are sophisticated solutions and that would be the best practice rather than being drawn back to something that just puts a barrier in place and having to go into a notaire's office physically with your passport, et cetera. Thank God for that. At least it's going to be hopefully digital. Exactly. And I guess we've kind of concentrated a little bit on probably more the financial crime aspects. What are your views in, in that widening sphere now of different regulations? So you've, you've mentioned uh, ESG there, also things like the new German Supply Chain Act, for example. Are you starting to see the ICA, your lens is, is going much wider and into different areas now that companies are having to contend with. Yeah, it's an exciting time to be alive, isn't it, really, as a compliance professional, because it, it's now so diverse and it's all interconnected. In fact, I was having a, a discussion actually yesterday with a friend of mine who's very senior in a very large, famous multinational that you and I will know very well. I won't say which one, but it is a very prominent one of the world's biggest companies. And he was talking about this kind of challenge that all entities have now is the, the range of compliance issues. So whether it's looking at, you know, managing your risks in your supply chain, or whether it's trying to protect your vulnerable customers, whether it's trying to manage risks around cyber fraud and attacks, whether it's trying to manage the use of virtual assets and crypto, how, how that exposure hits your business. And as I mentioned before, the whole ESG dimension as well has brought in another vast area. So we already at the ICA, we do a lot of training around governance, risk and compliance and sort of traditional regulatory compliance issues, conduct of business type regulation. And we've had to adapt that type of training into focusing on ES and G. Now, each of those are huge areas in their own right. And we are actually developing some new qualifications in the ESG space. So, so watch this uh, space for more news on that soon. But definitely... It's bringing together maybe different disciplines now. I think in compliance and having multidisciplinary teams is a really key development we're seeing. So, for example, you know, you may wish if you're evaluating a new technology solution to maybe enable your customers to transact differently through a, a mobile device or something like that. You know, you're going to have to think about the fairness issues to customers who maybe cannot use mobile devices because for a number of reasons, they're not digitally literate or they have some sort of disability or they're vulnerable in some way. But then you also may need to think about the supply chain involved in this process. Who are you actually dealing with? And so you may need people to do due diligence from a supply chain perspective, maybe anti-bribery perspective. And then, of course, you need your IT people to look at it from an IT security, managing risks around cybersecurity. And then, of course, you need your financial crime people to think about, well, how will these sort of solutions plug into our systems to do transaction monitoring or do sanction screening? So really, that's why it's so heartening to see compliance being at the heart now of, of innovation in businesses, because compliance really needs to be there to ask the questions around, well, how are we considering all of these issues, not just AML, financial crime, but also things like, you know, how do we look after vulnerable customers? How do we make sure our supply chain is robust? How do we make sure that we're managing the cyber security aspects of this? So I think the more senior compliance professionals of the future will have to have that really holistic view of compliance in the broadest possible sense. And I'm not even sure compliance is the right word for it, Neil. Maybe we can come up with something. Compliance has never been a sexy word, has it? Let's be honest. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I think it's it's broader. I'm not really articulating this well, but 
But it's really about, I guess, organizations now understanding that they need a multidisciplinary approach to look across the risks when they're dealing with new business initiatives. I guess that would be my takeaway. And the ICA is trying to respond to that by recognizing compliance just isn't about looking at an AML law, looking at a regulatory rule about what we can say at a financial services advert customers. It's actually now much broader. It also covers the E, S and G elements of this as well. Absolutely. I think we see the kind of other side of that in the thirst for more data to support it. So like we've said, a lot of the areas we've discussed already, they're looking at the technology and how they can utilize the data and technology to streamline the process. And similarly within Dun & Bradstreet and our ESG offerings, we're having to go out now, look for new data sources to support these different metrics for the environmental side and supply chain. Because yeah, the clients are wanting a different form of visibility and that the data landscape is less mature there where you know we're having to pull data in check what's the quality what's the governance around it etc to try and provide that so-called fuel to the engine the technology engine that's got to have something to try and streamline these areas but you're right we're having to look at everything a lot more holistically and like less of that narrower lens, the ESG, the supply chain, financial crime, et cetera. It's a growing sphere of data and competencies that people need to tackle that challenge. Yeah. I mean, a great example of that is we have a partnership at ICA with Stop the Traffic, and they have their traffic analysis hub. I don't know if you come across that, but again, I would just encourage any of our listeners who've not seen what Stop the Traffic and their traffic analysis hub do to check them out. And again, they take data from incredibly wide range of sources, from people reporting instances of trafficking attempts around the world to financial services firms data, and then trying to share that across civil and regulated sort of society. And that's another great example of what you're talking about is using and sharing data across different sectors. Like that can be so powerful because we know, don't we, that organized crime and terrible regimes they use networks globally to do bad things. So the best way to fight that is for us to form our networks, which I know is what you guys at Dun Bread Street do as well. You're you're big into that. And I would just encourage all of our listeners to think about, you know, what networks and partnerships are available in your jurisdiction and that your firm belongs to and how can you help make those better? Maybe even join new ones. That's the way forward. And we're seeing that a lot across Europe, particular, aren't we, with you know, lots of public and private partnerships, sharing of information, really good, great heartening to see, you know, we're just really exciting. Exactly. And it's uh, been mentioned multiple times that say these organized crime networks, they are extremely competent at what they do. They hire people that are professional lawyers, accountants, they have MBAs and they're very adept at building these structures and they obviously know the loopholes or the barriers. They know jurisdictions tend not to share data. So let's just create a structure that spans many jurisdictions. It will just frustrate the effort. So like you said, if we can share the data to make that less of a barrier that you can kind of skip from point A to, well, maybe not Z, but uh, somewhere more to the end and concentrate your time investigating there rather than just getting from A to B in the first place and to see, it can really help with law enforcement. And I think the sharing of the data is absolutely key. And I know that a lot of the reforms are talking around making that easier. And I think that will have big impacts because as we've said, again, we're kind of maybe repeating the same points, but that's where the intelligence starts to come out, isn't it? When you connect these data sets, connect these patterns, etc. 
So the industry does need to keep pushing on that front to get that data out there and shared between these different actors. Yeah, 100%. Well, we've touched on many areas, Pekka. We've touched on different geopolitical risks, compliance, the digital world, etc. And what are your thoughts around when it comes to the metaverse and the challenges and opportunities that that brings to this space? Yeah, it's so interesting, this. And I think there's still a huge amount of growth happening. Now, the metaverse is is not one particular experience. There are lots of metaverses out there. Many people will know about the relaunch of, of Meta with Facebook, but you've got places like Decentraland, many, many areas out there where you can basically go into a virtual environment and you can buy virtual real estate, you can host social events, you can run businesses, you can buy and sell virtual assets, in particular non-fungible tokens, which we've all been trying to um, unblow our minds by understanding why someone would pay 10 million quid for a virtual ape. (laughs) So having gone into the metaverse and had to wander around, you can do it without virtual immersive headset as well. You can join metaverses through pretty much any device these days. I would just encourage everyone, if you've not gone and had a look at some of these virtual environments, to have it just a wander as a a lay person. It's always fascinating. But from a, a compliance perspective, what is really interesting is many years ago, we had the scandal and the focus on Second Life and money laundering through Second Life, which some of you might remember, with Linden dollars and the use of a virtual currency, an in-game currency, effectively, to launder money. And we're seeing a lot of the echoes of that, but on a bigger scale now, where the price of virtual real estate in the metaverse has gone up to astronomic levels. People run virtual casinos in the metaverse where you can enter by buying non-fungible tokens and exchange value. And also there's a lot of other intriguing risks around, I guess, protecting individuals from fraud. So people losing their virtual assets through takeover of their virtual wallets or their assets being plundered, very, very common. And also, I guess, lots of wider, broader welfare issues about harassment, bullying, violence, sexual harassment, you know, obnoxious behavior of all sorts. And I guess that the really interesting thing is the international community is still wrestling with how to and if it's even possible to regulate in this space. So we know that there's a lot of attempts to regulate at the moment around virtual assets. And um, we have obviously the FATF leading on that and being very active. I see there was a colleague of mine, Malcolm Wright, who's very active in the space with FATF, was out in Singapore at a great meeting looking at new rules around the travel rule and how to manage the risks of fraud and how we can cooperate between law enforcement and providers of virtual assets and regulators, you know, so there are work going on, but it's regulation is catching up and it's way behind the technology because the technology is moving so quickly. The scientific analysis of the amount of money being laundered through the metaverse, I haven't seen any really robust analysis yet. Conceptually, it's got to be happening and the risks conceptually, to my mind, seem huge. The challenge is how do we get a coherent way of regulating this really exciting, innovative, organic sort of development, which is often decentralized without a central authority? How do we keep the benefits of that by making sure it's not exploited by bad people? I think that's the conundrum that a lot of people with bigger brains than me are wrestling with at the moment. And there is no easy answer. And and even just something like non-fungible tokens, you'll see FATF, I think, have 
have struggled with how do we actually regulate these things properly? And they've almost left it to individual jurisdictions to try and wrestle with that as well. Look, it's just a fascinating area, Neil. Go and get yourself a headset or at least go on on your laptop. Have a look at it. Have a wander around Decentraland or something like that. Get a sense of it. It's, it's fascinating. Maybe do some reading around it because I don't think it's going anywhere. You're seeing a lot of mainstream firms going in there, including some big financial services firms and some of the big four, I think, have gone in. I just think it's going to be an interesting space to keep your eye on over the next sort of year or so as, as things really get some momentum. Absolutely fascinating. We might see a virtual FCA or a, <laughs> some virtual equivalents in the metaverse, maybe. There's a lot of virtual conferences now being held, isn't there, on, on online. So it's going to be interesting to see where it goes in the next years in the business context as well, whether it does become truly mainstream. And I think, you know, talking to people that are more expert than me, I think the view is that it will become mainstream you know, sooner rather than later. Yeah. And I think also the point you mentioned there is can regulators keep up with the pace of the changes? I mean, even not thinking about the metaverse as chatting to one of the MLROs from a bank and just saying source of funds, source of wealth, things like that, Bitcoin. <laughs> How can you judge whether <laughs> that's completely legitimate? Just say, yes, I've mined some Bitcoin, it's gone up in value and I've suddenly converted it and I've got a whole lot of money. How, how do you check the veracity of that and keep pace with that? So it's, it's a real challenge for the regulators to keep up with the pace of technology and, and where that's going. Yeah, definitely. As a final question, what advice would you give to other compliance teams around helping them potentially move? from that kind of cost center view to a value center and being an important driver of a business? Yeah, well, I think a big opportunity here is with compliance as a value add. So moving away from that conception of the business prevention unit or the cost center. And I think there are some quick wins to do that. One is getting the ownership and the engagement with the business, making sure the business owns the risks and understands the benefits of managing those risks properly. I think ESG offers a great opportunity for that to say that we know now that shareholders, regulators, the media, even your own employees expect you to do the right thing and be dealing with the right people in the right way and to be dealing with your own staff in the right way. And there are economic benefits from doing that, never mind the wider societal benefits, plus the, the long-term sustainability of your business. So I think that kind of bringing the business along and making sure that they have to understand they own the risks, but the benefits for managing those risks with compliance and support can be enormous and not a drain, actually a business enabler, because more customers will come to you if you're seen as ethical and doing the right thing. And I think the other piece of advice I would give would be the technology solutions now are so transformational across whether it be you know the way you onboard clients to the way you monitor for management your risks, whether it's collecting MI to judge your ESG compliance, whether it's doing transaction monitoring, whether it's analyzing ownership structures, whether it's doing sanction screening, whatever it is, you know, to do that more efficiently now at any sort of scale, you need to look at the technology that's out there and talk to providers and work with your businesses to look at options to make things better, more effective, cheaper, but also to actually identify the bad guys more often and do the right thing. And I guess the last thing I would say to my point I made before is use the power of networks. So personally, think about what networks are you in as a professional? Could you be in more networks? Are there networks you're not part of that are good? And secondly, you know, push your organization to join those networks, whether it's working with NGOs, whether it's working with other firms, whether it's working with public bodies. There are huge growth in the area of, of networking and partnerships, and, and maybe you can be a part of that as well. 
And again, that's going to lead to greater efficiencies and successes in my view. Fantastic. Well, Pekka, it's been fantastic talking to you as ever. I wish we almost had more time to, to run through so many vast areas, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I hope we'll have more conversations like this very soon. Yeah, absolute pleasure, Neil. Thanks so much for having me. Find out more about how Dun & Bradstreet can help your business be better. Contact us at marketinguk at dnb.com. And remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.